Is it really the case that the idea of race or ethnicity are socially constructed categories? Bradley Mason says that race and racial categories were historically created to justify and maintain social hierarchy, slavery, and other forms of group-based exploitation, as well as to distribute rights, citizenship, privileges, access, and disparate advantages and disadvantages. Webster defines race as any one of the groups that humans are often divided into based on physical traits regarded as common among people of shared ancestry. But how does the Bible talk about race? My name is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant, a podcast where I rant about the most important theological and social issues of society from a Reformed Christian perspective. And today, I am ranting about the CRT Twitter evangelist Bradley, also a carpenter, Mason. Buckle up. We're going to give Bradley's uh, article on um, critical race theory, uh, not so brief overview, a little bit of a pointed and direct critique. Contrary to Bradley Mason's claim that race is a social construct, something engineered by the powerful, powerful as a tool to maintain power and control and exploit and oppress, Scripture actually paints a vividly different picture of the origins of race. Yes, this is true. If you read your Bible and pay attention to what it teaches, you will discover it has something to say about the history and the origins of what we call races within the human species. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Hmm. This means there was a time when races, plural, as we observe them today, did not exist. There was only one. Everybody spoke the same language. It was the same race. One race, not races. Hmm. The text goes on in verse 4 and says, They said... Come, 
Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves, notice, let us build for ourselves, let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The human race, at this particular point in time in history, made a decision to set up a system that ensured and preserved the idea of one race. The goal was not only to preserve one single race, but to elevate that race to the place of God. Let us make for ourselves a name. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel 8.13, where David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 of the enemy. Even, um, even in modern vernacular, we understand the pride, the significance behind the idea of making a name for yourself. Right, Go out and make a name for yourself. Do something. Be somebody. Make something happen. Make a contribution. Right, Make your, your mark. But what did God think about the people at Babel? Well, Genesis 11.6 says this. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. One people is the language. Right? The Hebrew word is am. In the singular, it meant a, a populous member, a citizen, kin, kinsman, a relative, uh, a populace, a people. A group, one group. The word is used over 1,800 times in the Hebrew text. It's very, very, very strongly attested. This word, when it's used in the plural, is used to refer to human beings of a particular nation or community, an ethnic group. In this particular case, in Genesis 11, it is clear that the idea of one race is in view. That much is undeniable for any honest truth seeker. So there's a, this is being painted, if you look at the language, as a problem. Right? Moderns, modern human beings might look at this and say, what's the problem? God considered it a problem. What did he do? So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So if you want to understand the true origin of race in human history, I suggest you look at Genesis rather than Bradley Mason's reference to a Harvard Law professor whose view of reality is radically different from that of Christianity. I suggest Moses. Moses, after all, got the facts 
directly from the one who created and ordered reality. Contrary to Bradley Mason's claim about the nature of the existence of race in human society, the Word of God tells us that the existence of different races is the result of God's curse on humanity at Babel. It was a judgment of God that was in response to the pride of humanity. God, once again, as he did with Adam and Eve, as he did with Noah, humbled the human race with his judgment. Now, another major inconvenient truth, inconvenient truth that Mason fails to acknowledge, let alone appreciate, is the fact that prior to the division of races on the earth, we already see servants of privileged men. So think about, think about this, the argument that's being made. Race is a social construct. It was put in place in order to uh, oppress, in order to elevate, in order to hold down, in order to privilege and benefit, in order to withhold. But even prior to the existence of many races, before there was even two races in existence, we already had the idea of social structural power in place. It was Canaan who was cursed to be a servant of servants. Social power structures are a direct result of sin, the cure for which, I might add, is Christ alone, and the total eradication of which will not occur until Christ returns to redeem the earth once and for all. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There is a coming redemption of social structures, but not yet. Mason and his CRT adherents continue to unwittingly or wittingly advance Moltmann's theology of hope. This error creates what we call an over-realized eschatology. So in conclusion then, on his first major argument about the origins of race, where Mason is claiming that it's basically an arbitrary social construct, a tool for power, a weapon, to keep the powerful powerful, those in power, to make sure they, they hang on to their power, uh, Mason has been proven demonstrably wrong. He apparently does not care to consult the book of Genesis that speaks directly to how races began in humanity. Now, the question for Mason and any other critical race theorist is... You know, what is, your, what is your final authority? What is your source, source for truth? As, we, as I talk a little bit more about this, we're going to find some more very disturbing issues in Mason's worldview. And I think these issues are more common than not amongst CRT, critical race theory, adherents. Right? 
Mason goes on in his article after setting it up the way he set it up with race being a arbitrary social construction in order to uh, preserve power. He moves to intersectionality. Now, what, what, what about intersectionality? He says further, because race has been socially constructed to serve different purposes for different groups at different times, race is inextricably linked with other social constructions and or social arrangements developed by dominant groups to distribute protections, rights, citizenship, privileges, access, advantages, and disadvantages. All right. If the link between, between race and other social groups, such as class, sexuality, and such, is social construction, and it is false that race is a social construct, if that's actually not the case, then it follows that Mason is also wrong about the link between groups who would suffer from what we call intersectionality and these other social groups, because the social groups were not, in fact, a arbitrary social construction. They, are, they exist as a result of the curse of God, the wrath of God, okay? So if there is a link, which I don't believe there is a link, it has to be someplace else, not where Mason claims that it is, okay? There isn't an inherent link. There is um, a movement between these groups, amongst these groups, a unifying principle, that is, of these groups coming together in order to ascend to power, which is what this is really all about to begin with, right? Are we really suggesting that no one should be in charge, that no one should be in control, that no one, that there would be, there should be no power structure? Are we really suggesting, can you imagine what that might look like for a minute? Just sit back for a second and try to imagine what a world would look like with no one in charge. No government, no structure, no society, no individual, no one, absolutely no, everything's equal. What would that look like in a fallen world? Could you imagine the utter chaos that would follow from that world? All right, that, has, that is never talked about when you start to peel the onion of the CRT folks and these people who think, Everything needs to be dismantled and deconstructed because they will tell you it's not about replacing who's in power. No, it's not about that. It's about complete and total equality among everybody. Someone has to be in charge. If no one is in charge, what happens? There has to be some power structure in place. The question is, what kind of a power structure operates best for what we might call in this temporary world human flourishing. The Bible speaks about the need for power structure and in fact tells us that God has put the power structure in place, that the power structure of the government that is in place around the world amongst the different nations the Bible describes that power structure 
as the minister of God to that end, to that purpose, to maintain order in a fallen, sinful society. All right. No one, no one, no one wants to talk about that. No one wants to think about that. If we press this further, the question that is being begged when it comes to intersectionality is, all right, if you're going to extend this from ethnicities, and you're even going to include physical appearance, such as something such as silly as melanin, uh, I, you know, should there be like no melanin, a no melanin group, or, or and once you, st once you go from, okay, this particular group has no melanin. So there'll be a group to themselves, well, well wait a minute, what about Asians? Okay, so now we got to split up. Now we're going to have to split up that non-melanin group and have Asians and other light-skinned folks. So we're going to split those. What about the melanin group? Right. There's some with more, some with less, light-skinned, dark-skinned. How are you going to divide those up? No one talks about this. But if you're going to go down this path, shouldn't you talk about it? I mean, seems to me like you should talk about it. All right. So, but no one talks about it. All right. Enough of that. So now we're going to also mix into these groups um, other people who are oppressed. So, you know, from the very beginning, this whole thing turns on the idea that there are those who are the oppressed and those who are the oppressor, right? Those with the power who oppress, those with the privilege who oppress versus those who don't have the privilege or who are the oppressed. I've already said in uh, Reformed Grants past that privilege is a sliding scale. There's no such thing as privilege and no privilege. Everybody is privileged. The question is, to what degree? Some people are more privileged than other people. Where do you draw the line on how much privilege everybody should have? I mean, should, should those people who are putting forth more effort and making a greater contribution, maybe they've been gifted by God, especially to do certain things, should they have more privilege? Or should they have the same amount of privilege as, as opposed to someone who, who maybe is just as gifted from God, but who's lazy? Should they have the same privilege? How are you going to divvy up the privilege? What's the criteria? And who says, if no one's in control, who says what the criteria ought to be? We get together and vote on all this? Is that how this is going to work? Wow, I don't know. At any rate, so we're going to press this further. If it is the case that we're going to now have homosexuals, um, and others included in this group, transgendered people who are suffering from gender dysphoria. What about pedophiles? What about people who like to have sex with animals? Shouldn't they be their own group too? I mean, shouldn't they be included? I mean, this is really where this is going. We already know, based on the language that Mason uses, that homosexuals are definitely recognized as a legitimate social group. Now, you have to ask yourself a question. A God-fearing, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, blood-washed Christian, 
can you legitimize the homosexual group as a legitimate social group? What does the Bible say about those who practice such things? This is organizing a group. This is constructing a group using criteria of human behavior in the area of sex. And this particular behavior, this particular sexual behavior, is forbidden by God. Can a Christian be involved in legitimizing something like that? I think the answer is self-evident. It's obvious. If God condemns such a practice, then it is, I, what is the word? Irresponsible? It's worse than irresponsible. It's blasphemous for us to legitimize something that, like that that God hates and to elevate it to the level of ethnicity. It is outrageous. But it seems to me that Mason is legitimizing the homosexual class. It seems to me that that is exactly what he's doing. Look, there's nothing godly about ignoring God's own classification of people as morally, spiritually, and naturally reprehensible based on their choice to behave in such ways as to blaspheme God's name. It's pretty simple. Does the Bible oppress minority groups? This is a question when you start talking about CRT and, this, and you enter into this conversation and take the modern principles, right? Modern morals, take your modern morals, take your modern principles and look at conduct in the Bible and then ask the question, would the Bible be guilty of endorsing practices that modern men and women would deem as oppressive, including Mason? Well, let's let's just let's just take a look at this. In the Bible, women are not permitted a career in training others, either as pastors of churches or professors in our seminaries. They can't be in charge. Women are pro prohibited from being leaders of the home. Homosexuals are not allowed even to be members in the Christian community. Not permitted. There is no affirmative action policy in place that is designed to ensure a certain level of ethnic diversity where the elders are concerned in the church. You can't read the Bible and, and come up with this idea that if you have 25 or 30 elders in your church, you should that those elders should be ethnically diverse. There's no mandate in Scripture for that. The Bible does not teach such things as this. In the Bible, slaves are warned and commanded to obey their masters, even 
evil masters that do not treat them well. And what's, what's even more interesting is that the apostles didn't lift a finger to fight the oppression of slavery in ancient Rome. There isn't a solitary verse in the entire New Testament. There is zero indication that the New Testament church did anything to oppose or put an end to slavery. There is nothing in the New Testament that indicates that the New Testament church even thought about the idea of equality of opportunity the way modern people do. Okay, So what's going on? Well, what's really going on is that this is a numbers game. There aren't enough homosexuals to stand up and take power. There's not enough uh, of this particular ethnic group. There's not enough transgender. There isn't enough uh, in the in the. There isn't enough feminists, right? So these groups have to come together in order to quote fight the ungodly oppressor. That's right. If you think that CRP is opposed to power mongers, you would be wrong. They are power mongers. And this is not about eliminating power or privilege. It is about shifting both to someone else. It's about shifting privilege and power away from A over to B. And B would be those anyone that is in one of those groups. That's what this is about. And that's why it's so often accused or identified as, as Marxist in nature. Okay. Mason goes on to make the claim that racism is endemic to American culture. Is this, I mean, is, is this really the case? I, I think that this is a major logical fallacy. Uh, if you were to put it down on paper and, and put the argument in place, it would be guilty of, of committing the non sequitur. This means that Mason's argument is not only unsound, it's invalid. The first issue is, May, is, is Mason's linking of slavery to racism. Right? Now, it may be the fact, and it is the fact, that if you go back in time in this country, that you have a lot of racism. You have tons of it. Um, that's an indisputable fact. And there were the thinking that uh, African humans were inferior to Europeans or Westerners, that black people were inferior to white people. That thinking existed. It was not only factually wrong, it was morally repugnant. About as far wrong as anything could possibly be. So it was, it was idiotic, it was anti-scientific, and it was ungodly. Even in the Bible where you have slaves, Christian masters were instructed to treat those slaves with respect and honor and dignity and to not think about them as inferior to them in any way, that they were somehow less than. There's no disputing any of this. However, 
to say that slavery and racism are synonymous is false because there were plenty of slave owners who did not hold those views and who treated their servants and slaves very, very well. We don't like to focus on those because they don't prop up the narrative. Racism is ipso facto a sin. Slavery is not ipso facto a sin. If it were, Paul would have condemned it. Paul didn't condemn it. Ever. Right. So if you're going to stand up and say all slavery is sin, well, you're going to have to show us where God put you in charge and the Bible's been rewritten. Just go to the Bible and look up everywhere slavery's talked about and mentioned, where masters are talked about and mentioned, and you will find out what the Bible has to say about slavery. And that's really all I care about. All I care about is what the Bible says about any of these issues. I don't care what other people say about them because other people say all kinds of crazy things for all kinds of different reasons. And I'm interested in what God says about it because I know that what God says about it is true. And that's all I care about. It's all you should care about. Now, here's a question. Can a system that once might have been tainted with racism be transformed into a system that has left that aspect of itself behind. Mason is arguing that we are still... So, so if you really... Let's just back this up just a little bit. So what is Mason trying to do? He's trying to, in his mind, he's trying to make American society completely free of racism that there's no elements of, of, of racism, structural or otherwise, if you believe in structural racism, which I do not. That's what he's trying to do. All right. Okay. So let's let's just take that and, and let, let's, let's ask this question. So you're saying it's endemic to American culture, which means that it's embedded uh, and we're hopelessly infected. So if that's the case, how are you possibly going to change that? If we are hopeless, hopelessly still infected with racism. That's your argument. That's the argument. The, the rebuttal to that argument that I make is that not only is it possible for a culture or society that was once completely, uh, or not, let's, I'm not going to say completely, I will say predominantly racist or had a huge segment that was racist, driven by racism, passing laws that were racist, that were unequal, that were unfair, that were ungodly. Um, can that society purge itself of that kind of thinking? Well, Mason, in arguing that by using the word endemic to American culture, is he's, he's kind of implying that, that uh, how do you overcome this? It's impossible to do this. Yet at the same time, that's what he's striving for. My rebuttal is, we've already done that. My rebuttal is, we have purged the society of, of the kind of thinking that leads to the passing of laws and codes and structures 
social structures that unfairly disadvantage certain ethnic groups based on their ethnicity, okay? Based on their ethnicity. Now, now let me say this. It is possible for an ethnic group to be disadvantaged in a free country like America because that ethnic group is deciding to hold on to cultural practices and values that are antithetical or incongruent with flourishing in our system. Education's one of them. Let's suppose that you have an ethnic group that is opposed to higher education. Real higher education. I'm not talking about the brainwashings going on in universities today. I'm talking about education, formal structured education, math, English, science, languages, whatever the case might be. It's opposed to that kind of, and would prefer to just work with your hands uh, in, in, let's say, farming. And that's how they raise their children. That's how they get, a, get on with their community. And you're living in a society where technolo technological advances have made that kind of work almost obsolete so that the amount of money you are paid to do that kind of work is at bottom. And let's say this is common among this particular ethnic group. Would that ethnic group be disadvantaged in this society? The answer is yes. But is it based on the fact, is it based on their ethnicity? No, it's not. It's based on the fact that while society around the globe has progressed and technology has advanced, that ethnic group has made a conscious decision not to change with the changing times. And it isn't society that has disadvantaged them. They have disadvantaged themselves. Right? When you have as we see in, in many cases in uh, some of the ethnic groups, take the black community, for example, when you have mothers who have eight different children, 10 different children from four different men, or you have you know, a, a, a black man who has 15 different kids from six different women, or you have dropout rates, or you, have, uh, uh, you start off in life by getting yourself in trouble legally at an early age and you disadvantage your, yourself. Uh, it, that, is not, uh, that is not discrimination. That is not bias against a particular ethnic group. That's an ethnic group shooting itself in the foot because it refuses to address those kind of issues that are inherent disadvantages in a system like the one we have. These, that's the difference, right? So let's just chat for a minute about what, what, is, what has gone on. Bet somewhere between 600 and 750,000 white men fought and died to put an end to slavery. That's, that's a lot of lives. White men ended Jim Crow laws. It wasn't black guys. Black, black men didn't end Jim Crow laws. White men did that. 
white men worked feverishly to pass the Civil Rights Act. Since the passage of the Civil Rights Act, white men have worked diligently to remove anything remotely resembling discrimination based on a person's ethnicity. And in fact, when CRT proponents are asked to point to specific laws or codes that are demonstrably discriminatory in nature, they always fall silent because they can't point to any. So then what are we changing? Are we changing attitudes? Can I change your attitude about ethnic groups? What if you just don't like Asians and you just want to not like Asians? I'm going to tell you that I find your attitude repugnant and disgusting and immoral, but I can't change it. No one can. No law can change how you think about another ethnic group, period. And if you happen to have a business or you happen to be in a position to advantage some people and disadvantage others, you can get around the laws. And there's no way for us to change that in a fallen world. God will deal with you soon enough. This is an issue, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. CRT is indeed a tool, folks. It's a tool for grabbing as much power as you possibly can. Think about this. CRT requires division. Christianity requires unity. CRT begins with the outward appearance and focuses on the superficial aspect of ethnicity and or appearance. Christianity looks at the hidden man of the heart, your values, the fruit of the spirit. CRT holds onto wrongs and insists on interpreting everything through the lens of racism and oppression and hate. Christianity insists on thinking more highly of others than even of yourself. CRT is relentlessly unforgiving of past sins. Christianity is nothing if it is not a religion of forgiveness. CRT is built on covetousness, on envy, discontentment. Christianity repudiates coveting, envy, and insists that believers be content. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. On the issue of forgiveness, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, said this, Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Wow. Matthew 18.33, Jesus says, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's sobering. Exodus twenty seventeen regarding covetousness. You should not cover your neighbor's house. You should not cover your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. No coveting. 
Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. 1 Peter 2, 1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander. What about unity? To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Contentedness. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Hmm. When was the last time you heard a woke extremist even use the word content, let alone hint that such an attitude is demanded of Christians in the New Testament? These are just a few of Mason's problems, flaws in his arguments, in his worldview. But he has more. Mason points out that CRT is greatly influenced by critical legal scholars, which is mostly built on legal realism. Like any other subject, Mason says, like, or like any other social artifact, the law contained many practical, many practically produced contradictions. It's subject to multiple interpretations. It's fundamentally indeterminate and should be treated and employed as an object of sociological inquiry rather than a system residing in Plato's heaven. Now, this is coming from critical legal scholars. Critical race theory runs parallel with and is influenced by critical legal scholars' ideas, right? Legal realism. Does this resemble anything? Does this resemble anything remotely resembling a Christian concept of law, God's law or man's law? Romans 13.1 says every person to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God established authority and law. God created man. God created the structures of society. Legal realism argues the other way around. God says we are to be in subjection to the law, while Mason embraces a system with ties to a philosophy of law that is clearly incongruent with Christian theology. Mason goes on and says, for, for CLS, critical legal scholars, as for CRT, much of the furniture of social reality and knowledge are eminently conditioned social constructions and therefore do not exist independently of law and society. Law is the creator of that which it governs. Law is not created in order to govern social structures, but rather, law creates those structures. What is the Christian view of law? Christians believe that there exists governmental law, divine law, natural law. When we read Exodus, we read about Moses receiving the law of God that would become the code by which the social structures in Israel would be governed. Mason is very busy 
drinking deeply from the philosophy of men whose worldviews are anything but Christian. And these are the philosophies of the men who are in back of critical race theory. Why should we find it shocking that ungodly men who embrace ungodly philosophies should create a worldview that is at its core incongruent with Christian morality, Christian principles, Christian doctrine? Look, when, when you're referencing a system, when you're embracing a system, when you're building a worldview from a system or embracing the worldview of a system, that has philosophers like Foucault and Derrida. You, you, you do not get any more antithetical to a Christian worldview than those philosophers. Post-structuralism, post-modernism. Derrida was a was was the the probably the, the most influential deconstructionist philosopher that lived. Absolutely, positively, as damaging to the area of biblical hermeneutics as one could possibly be. And it is the philosophies of these kinds of men that sit underneath or that CRT and these views rest upon. It should be noted that Christian philosophers and theologians have, since their, their introduction, pointed out the perniciousness of the projects known as post-structuralism and post-modernism. Kevin Van Hooser uh, makes a very helpful uh, point in uh, regarding uh, Dorita's uh, view. He says, Dorita challenges the pretension of the philosopher and the exegete to have arrived at a fixed or correct view of things. This holds true whether the thing in question is a text, an event, or even the world as a whole. Neither priests who supposedly speak for God, no philosophers who supposedly speak for reason, should be trusted. This logocentric claim to speak from a privileged perspective is a bluff that must be called, or better, deconstructed. This is, this is Dorita's ideas. It's just what he thinks. You can't get more antithetical. If Dorita's if project is right, what are the implications of that for texts like John 8, 31-32? So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Or John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What about Genesis 1, 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But this is Bradley Mason. This is Bradley Mason's philosophy. These are Bradley Mason's views. These are the views of critical race theory. And this is where they run headfirst into the teachings of Scripture, contradicting the very words of God. So doctrinally speaking, 
critical race theory finds itself in opposition to the teachings of Scripture from the very get-go. The idea that race is a social construction is, is contradicted by the teachings of the Bible. The idea that people are broken up into classes and set over against one another, that there's the oppressed and the oppressor, and that's where everything starts, is a view that the Bible itself does not take. The fuel required to move the CRT train down the tracks involves values that are antithetical to Christian praxis, covetousness, unforgiveness, envy, greed, bitterness, disharmony. It doesn't get more unchristlike than that. To sum it up, I say this about any CRT proponent, advocate. If the well from which you take your water is poisoned, do not be surprised to discover that you have put an end to the very life you sought to preserve by drinking from it. God bless. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've said something that uh, is, is informative, something encouraging, something edifying, something that that might challenge you to look into these issues a little deeper. Do yourself a favor. Do everything you possibly can to take a stand against any hint that critical race theory is making its way into your congregation, your church. If you want to leave us a comment or question, you can do so at Reformation Charlotte on uh, Facebook. Uh, you can also do the same thing if you're listening to the podcast uh, in uh, the uh, with the uh, app with the anchor app you can leave comments questions you can also go to reformedreasons.com and leave comments which is where this will be ultimately posted and linked out from uh, these other sites all right take care god bless this podcast is part of the bible thumping wingnut network biblical christianity's marketplace of ideas biblethumpingwingnut.com Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior.